Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. Paul goes to Corinth. Corinth, by application, metaphorical application, Corinth is a place that will make you or break you, as it did with Paul. And let me read just a little bit of the scripture today. About eight verses, I suppose, starting at the beginning of the 18th chapter. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. I'll comment on that in just a minute. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, we've seen this before, haven't we? He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. This was a point in Paul's ministry where I have called it the day Paul gave up. And I just want to recap a little bit of what Paul has done so far in his life. His experience as a missionary has not been the kind that would make him feel extraordinarily successful. He has struggled in everything he's tried to do and in every town he has gone to. He has not seen a flood of converts like they had in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, and revival broke out, and thousands got saved. Paul goes town to town and gets a handful of people here and there. So by contrast, if he's going to judge his ministry by what he has seen happen in Christianity, he has not seen the same level of success, but he keeps going. And he has limited success. He has severe persecution. And all of this was emotionally taking its toll on Paul. And remember, most recently, Paul had received a vision. 
How many of you have ever had a vision? Had a, by far the minority of people here. They're powerful things, aren't they? And Paul had a vision of a man in Macedonia that was crying out, come over here and help us. We need some help. So he went to Macedonia. He responded to the vision. He attributed this to the direction that God was giving him. God was involved in that. That vision didn't happen just because of normal circumstances. God gave him a vision. He responded. He went. And when he went to Macedonia, he went to Thessalonica. They kicked him out. He went to Berea, the Thessalonians came down there and kicked him out. He went to Athens, and they urged him to go somewhere else. And, you know, he's answering the call and having all of this trouble. What's with that? You know, don't you kind of want to say, God, you told me to go do this. Why am I not succeeding? And so the lack of apparent success, the persecution that was coming upon him in his ministry, and he was about down to his last nerve. And he goes to Corinth and goes to the synagogue and he ministers there. And eventually they get tired of his ministry in the synagogue. He was having a few converts. But the others who were tolerating him were thinking, this, we don't want this guy hanging around here anymore. So they hauled him uh, before the authorities and brought charges against him that he was doing something against Roman law. And he was constantly being resisted. And uh, it was difficult for him to get any traction because always meeting resistance. And after he had met a managed to gain a few converts out of the uh, synagogue in Corinth. And then the rest of the Jews rose up against him. That's when Paul finally came to the point where he lost it. And that's what we read in this little opening verse here. He finally got pretty disgusted with them, and, and he just told them, he said, you know what? Your blood be on your own heads. Translation, I'm not taking responsibility. If you die and go to hell, that's going to be your problem. My hands are clean. I've done what I can. You've rejected it. And he said, I'm, I'm tired of going to my people, the Jews, and trying to take this good news and them being so stubborn and blind and hard-headed and resistant. He said, I've had it. I'm, I'm done. I'm going to the Gentiles from now on. That is that exasperated point that Paul came to when I call it it's the day he just gave up. Now, he didn't give up on God, and he didn't give up on ministry, but he gave up on the hope of trying to reach his people by the method he was using. He continued to pray for them. We see that in his epistles. But at this point, he said, I'm just not getting anywhere. I'm not getting the kind of response that I would like to have. So he said, I quit. I'll go to the Gentiles. They seem to be much more receptive to the message I have to bring. I know that every one of us face a lot of pressures in life. And I can relate to what Paul is talking about as a minister. You probably cannot relate 
to Paul as a minister, but you can probably relate to the pressures of just wanting to quit. You just want to give up. You try, and life keeps throwing you all kinds of curves, and you just say, I, I quit. You, know, you want to quit your job. You want to quit life. You want to quit your marriage. You want to quit. You just want to quit. You just want to stop. And life can bring the kind of pressures against us where it's a real temptation just to bug out. And it takes a lot of grace and a lot of strength from God to be able to push through those times when you just want to quit. I said as a minister, I understand that. We have kind of a, a little uh, ins, inside joke, if I can use that word, among ministers. And that is when one minister will say, I've got a resume, I've got a, a, a resignation letter typed up and in my desk, ready to go any given Sunday. Or another minister will say, I go home every Sunday night and type up my resignation and then tear it up on Monday morning. Because in the ministry, there are discouragements. You don't, like Paul, you don't see the same success, apparent, measurable success somebody else is seeing. You want to quit. I belong to minister discussion groups. I've mentioned that numerous times in my sermon. But I, I see and hear the heart of other ministers quite often as they go on there, and it's a place to vent to other ministers. Just this past week, a minister got on there, and he was just talking about uh, just the hardships of ministry. And he said one of the most shocking things didn't shock me, but I know it is a shocking thing to say in that forum. He said, I've pastored for almost 40 years and gave a little background on that. And he said, early in my life, he said, I always wanted my kids to grow up, to follow in my footsteps and be pastors. And he said, I can say at this point in my life, I no longer want that. <clears throat> now, of course, here, here come the critics that, oh, you should never say that. You're a pastor, and it's the most wonderful thing in the world. You ought to want your children to be pastors. You know, and, and the thing about it is, as difficult as life has been for my wife and I and all that we've been through, my prayer has always been that my children would love and serve God with all of their heart, but God, please don't make them pastors. Now, don't get bitter and don't get shocked. Serve God any other way. As a matter of fact, I used to sit on a credentialing committee, and people would sit before us, and we would interview them because they wanted to get credentialed with the Assemblies of God as a part of that committee to do that. And it was not unusual for us to tell them, why do you want to go into the ministry? And to even say, is there anything else you can possibly do with your life besides go in the ministry? I mean, you've got you to prepare them. This is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult. And then, of course, his, his comments on this, this group and my comments in saying, yeah, I understand. We got rebuked by the uh, Pharisees. <laughs> and uh, one 
two or three of them had a testimony, something like this. We've been in the ministry for 50 years, and we've been hauled to jail because of somebody who got baptized in the Holy, baptized in the Holy Spirit. We got beaten up because somebody that got saved, a woman got saved, and the husband came. We got to, you know, the fact of the matter is, if you're going to serve the Lord, Jesus said it's not uncommon to face persecution. I, I understand that. I can take that. The most difficult thing to take in ministry is not the persecution from the world that doesn't understand Christianity. The most difficult in thing to, in the ministry is to take is to endure betrayal. To be bitten by the sheep that you're trying to shepherd. To be betrayed by the people that you are trusting. That's where the hurt comes. Now, Paul can take the persecution from the people who are not religious. But when it's his own people, his own Jews, that they're serving the same God, and he's trying to open their eyes and say, hey, guys, we're supposed to be on the same side here. It's Jehovah God, you know. It's Messiah, you know. This is the Messiah. And when he gets uh, mistreated and persecuted by his very own people, the people of God, that's what wore him down. Sure, he had hardships, perils of robbers and shipwrecks, and those things didn't wear him down. He said, on top of all of that, the care of the churches. That's what wore him down. But what is it that brings you to the point of almost giving up? I guess the only thing I have to say about that is God knows, God cares. And God will be there for you. As they say, when you come to the end of your rope, what do they say? Tie a knot and hang on. You just got to get through this. Everything's going to be all right. Now I want to move to the next part of this. Paul went to Corinth after having been physically and emotionally abused. And there's reason to believe that the physical persecution, the physical abuse of Paul still had its lingering effects on them. After all, man, he got, he got his back opened up with the scourge, you know. He, he's been, he, his body's been broken. He's been left for dead. Don't think that he heals up in a few weeks. He's probably got lingering pains and scars from what has happened to him physically. And then the mental effects of everything he has been through. And he comes to Corinth with all of these things as powerful reminders of everything he has been through so far in trying to be in ministry for the Lord. So in his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul said in the second chapter, the third verse, he tells the Corinthians, he said, you know what, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. So he establishes right there in his epistle in his letter to them his emotional and physical state when he came to Corinth I came to you a worn out old dish rag I came to you beat up and at the end of my wits I came to you worn out I came to you trembling with fear wondering what Corinth held for me but he went anyway I said he went anyway I want you to face your fears. 
Fear can be so paralyzing. Fear can take away the opportunity for God to work through you and do what he wants to do through you. One of the greatest obstacles for us to overcome in serving God is our personal fear. And I want you just to consider for a moment some of the things that you refuse to do for God simply because you are afraid. I hope that sends a shockwave your way. Because, if, let, me, let me say that again. Think of the things you refuse to do for God because you are afraid. You are before God. God is asking you to do this, and you're saying, no. God says, why? I'm afraid. That doesn't sell very well with God. Now, I was raised by a, a pretty strict authoritarian. My dad forced me through things that I didn't like to do. He didn't coddle me in my fears. I think my mom may have wanted to, but my dad would have none of it. He's going to have to learn. That was his philosophy. I remember so many instances in my life of my dad forcing me through my fears. We lived in a, a, a three-story old Victorian house when I was about five years old. And we could only occupy the first floor. There was no reason to occupy the second floor or the third floor. I think my dad's ultimate goal was to turn some of the other rooms into little uh, apartments and rent those out. And he, and he, and he did that. He, he converted some of those rooms. But before that, when we first got there, my bedroom was on the third floor. Oh, you're way ahead of me, aren't you? You know where this is going. So come about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night, me being the youngest in the family at that time, my baby sister was not born yet, the, my bedtime came earlier than my big brother. And my dad would say, Scott, it's time to go to bed. I dreaded with everything in my being. I dreaded that moment. I wanted to stop the clock. I, I wanted to suspend time. I didn't want, but every night it came. Scott, it's time to go to bed. And I had to go to the third story of an old rickety three-story house. It was as scary as you can imagine a young child would think it would be. You know, I think if I whimper and cry and hesitate a little bit, maybe I can get out of this. Not with my dad. That doesn't work. He's going to make sure I go up to the third story and I go to bed. And I had to face my fears. I had no option. I had no say in the matter. We would go to the lake and I was only about four or five years old and my dad would set me on the dock and he'd be in the water and he would say, now jump to me. That wasn't why I went to the lake. 
Dad wanted me to do that. I was, you got to understand people, it was not like I was like, we get to go to the lake and I get to jump off the dock. That's scary. It wasn't very high. It couldn't have been more two or three feet high off the water to a little child that looks like it's 50 feet. And furthermore, knowing, knowing as sure as a human being can know anything, that one of these times my dad's not going to catch me and let me find out what it feels like to go underwater and bop back up. Because that was the way he taught me. Jump, I don't want to. Jump, dad, I don't want to. No, you're going to jump. Let's do something else. Not until you jump. See, there was no out arguing. I had to jump. I would jump and he'd catch me. Now jump again. Now I knew that time was coming when he was not going to catch me. I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. See, Dad made me face my fears. And it did something to me for the rest of my life. <laughs> but I think it did something good to me. Because no matter what I do that I'm afraid of, my dad died in 2005, and I wasn't around him as we were off on our own life in Alabama and California. But no matter what I do in my life that I'm afraid of, Dad is right there taunting me. Do it! <laughs> I don't want to, Dad. Do it! He's dead now. He's still right there. And I'm glad that I have to face my fears. Because Paul said, I went to Corinth. He's, get the picture of this. Get the scope of this, people. Who's he writing to? Tell me, who's he writing to? Some of you were listening. He's writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthian what? The church. This is years after he went to Corinth. As recorded in the book of Acts. There's a church there. And he's writing to the church. And he's saying, let me tell you how this all got started. I went to Corinth in the deepest throes of fear that you could imagine. And he's writing to the church that it was a result of his obedience to go to Corinth. Because he didn't yield to his fears. And there was a congregation there. Now, here's the point. There are things that God wants you to do. And there are things that could have happened if you'd have been obedient. And for you to say, I, but I was afraid and therefore I did not, is not a good enough excuse for God. Because sometimes it, it, if Paul hadn't gone, there wouldn't have been a Corinthian church. At least not by his efforts. And so... You know, I'm talking to you as a pastor, trying to talk, tell you some things that are desperately important in the lives of some people here today. When you're going to say, I don't want to, I'm afraid, do you realize maybe what you are not allowing to happen in the kingdom? Are you, you realize what you are, you are short-circuiting, what you are truncating, what you are eliminating from the future because you said, no, I'm afraid. Paul said, I was, a, I was scared to death, and I went anyway. Fear is no excuse. What might 
God accomplish through you if you face your fears God will provide he'll do the hard work he will equip you he will guard you he will protect you he will plow the path he will blaze the trail you have to be the one to face your fears that's what you've got to do he'll do the rest he will not face your fears for you that is your responsibility and when you stand before God and you have to explain to him why you would not jump when he said jump because I'm afraid how do you think that's going to go for you I don't think it's going to go very well it's called disobedience when Jesus gave the parable of the uh, talents there was one who didn't do anything with his talents he buried it out of what fear two of them did something they took the risk one of them he tried to explain when the man came back why he had no gain why didn't you invest it he said because I was afraid and I knew you were a hard man and the man said that's no excuse I would rather you had taken a chance and lost it than to do nothing oh man face your fears God had rather you try and fail as to say I don't want to do that because I'm afraid I guess we could stop there and have an altar call but I don't know if you'd come you might be too afraid Let's fly through this final point. It's precisely because of Paul's emotional question and struggles that God then sends him a very special message of encouragement. It says in verse 9, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. This is what the Lord said. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So, Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half. That's a record for Paul, teaching them the word of God. Now, let me break that down for you. The first thing that God says to Paul when he's discouraged, when he's afraid, he's uncertain. He says, do not be afraid. And sometimes that is easier said than done. Because I really can't control my fear. All I can do is act regardless of my fear. That's the best I can do. It's like if you're just scared, stiff, and somebody says, don't be afraid. It's not like you go, oh, okay. Oh, that feels better. You can't really control that. But what it means is don't be afraid is don't hesitate to do what you have to do because you're afraid. But God is telling him there's no need. There's no rational need to be afraid. If you are afraid, it's your own imagination. It's what you think might happen. But God says don't be afraid. Now, when people tell you don't be afraid... You can't always trust that. 
they don't know. The Titanic was said to be unsinkable. Get on board. Don't be afraid. It's okay. It's bad advice. And in this world, people have finite knowledge and finite understanding. So they're trying to encourage you. Don't be afraid. Go for it. It's going to be okay. But when God tells you, don't be afraid, you can take that to the bank. When he says, when he knows, when he sees, and he said, I'm going to take care of you. Don't be afraid. You can't use the excuses you use to people. You have to trust God. God said, don't be afraid. At that point, then you have to quit being afraid. Period. Because God told you there's nothing to worry about. Many a young person has hesitated when they were tempted to do wrong. But Satan comes along and tells them, there's nothing to be afraid of. Others have done it. They're still alive. See, it's the lies of the devil. God says, do not be afraid. You'd better get your act together. Perfect love casts out all fear. You can never be safer than moving forward when God had said, do not be afraid. The second thing that God tells Paul to encourage him, he said, keep on speaking and do not be silent. It was generally Paul's mouth that got him in trouble. He went into town, he preached, they hated him, they beat him up, they threw him out. It was his mouth. And so God says to Paul, going into Corinth, he said, don't be afraid and keep on preaching. Don't be silent. Don't let your troubles push you into a corner and gag you. Just because you have preached and got in trouble before doesn't mean you're going to preach and get in trouble this time. I'm going to take care of you. Don't be afraid to speak. Paul just, all he did was simply present the truth and people got angry. Angry to the point of physically attacking him for just saying the truth. Now, the old adage says that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So if you go into town and you preach and they beat you up, isn't it insane to go back and do it again and expect it to be any different? Except God said this time, this time, here at Corinth, don't be afraid to speak. Paul could have said, every time I open my mouth, I make somebody angry. God says, keep on preaching, keep on teaching. It's going to be all right. Now, it would have been easy for Paul to come to the conclusion, this is just not working. My own people won't listen to me. I'm not seeing revival like they did in Jerusalem. These people are so enraged just because I'm preaching the truth. I'm not insulting them. I'm not slandering them. I'm just telling them about Jesus. I know I'm not saying the wrong thing. It must be me and the way I'm saying it. And Paul said, God told Paul, don't be afraid to preach. Keep on preaching. Don't be silent. Don't get discouraged. Don't let the opposition silence you. Because that's exactly what the opposition wants to do. 
wants to shut you up. Keep preaching, keep speaking, keep testifying, keep witnessing, don't quit. Third, God tells him, I'm with you. He said, no one's going to attack and harm you. Boy, that is good news. <laughs> but here's the interesting thing. Because I have many people in this city. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind is if God says you can preach and you can teach and nothing's going to harm you because I'm going to make sure they don't, my mind, if I'm in Paul's position, goes back. So why did you let them then if you have the power to keep them from doing that? I think that's a very practical question. God says, I will make sure they don't hurt you. Well, where were you back in Thessalonica? Because they hurt me, and you let them, and I want to know why. We have a thousand questions for God when we get there. We wrestle with the, 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 the difficulty of God being able to do something and not doing something. You can protect me, but you didn't. You can heal me, but you didn't. And so God's telling Paul, I'll make sure they don't harm you this time. <laughs> I'm not promising next time. Why, God? Why is it that you have the power to do things that sometimes you choose not to do? Is there any more clear evidence in Scripture that even though God can't intervene, sometimes he chooses not to intervene? And what are we to think of a heavenly father who allows his children to suffer? I, as, a, as an earthly father, I'm not particularly fond of the idea of, if I have a, a younger child, standing there and watching them get beat up by somebody and as a father not intervening. It would be my fatherly instinct to step in there and say, you're not going to touch my son. So it's hard for me to imagine how God can justify letting people physically abuse his children and saying, I'll let it go this time. We want God to respond like we think we would as humans. How can uh, the, the father who has the power to stop injustice, how can he allow his children to suffer at the hands of evil people just because they're preaching the truth? Can't we imagine this world in which God's messengers take the gospel to a lost and dying world and they're given superpowers? We've got these superheroes. They're so popular these days. All these movies about these superheroes. So why can't God make his missionaries superheroes? Why can't he give them powers so that people can't hurt them? So when they speak the truth, they have the perfect answer. Why can't God do that? And wouldn't it be much more effective but such a world, if we had that world where all you had to do is just be a preacher, just be a minister, just be an evangelist, just be a missionary, and suddenly you were in, endowed with superpowers that nobody could stop you, then wouldn't that put the message of the gospel in a different light? And wouldn't be people be drawn to the preaching of the gospel because they thought they could get superpowers too? 
Wouldn't they be drawn to a gospel that promises personal protection and, 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 and they come because of its personal benefits instead of become, coming because it calls people to come to a cross and die? It would be a whole different message. As it is, the gospel is spread by those who believe in it so much that they are willing to die and sometimes they have to die. That is the value of the gospel. There'd be no value to the gospel if we didn't have to die. There's no chance of dying. Anybody resist us, we, we zap them. They're reduced to dust. Convert or die. Call fire down from heaven. But we, are, we invest ourselves in this, bringing the gospel to people who will resist and sometimes turn on us. And we have to have that attitude, God, I'll serve you if it costs me everything. That's the pricelessness of the gospel. God tells Paul he has many people in this city. Well, at first, I would like to think that what God means is, I've got a lot of Christian brothers and sisters there. They're already saved, and they'll be by your side. But that's not what God's telling him. This was an unconverted city. Uh, Aquila and Priscilla were transplants. They came from Rome. And see, what happened in Rome is whenever Jerusalem had that, that revival on the day of Pentecost, and all these people were getting saved. Remember, it was the day of Pentecost, so the Jews came from all around the Roman Empire. And they found the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they found salvation, and they went back home. And wherever they went back home, there was a presence of Christianity all throughout the Roman Empire. And so the Christians in Rome who were preaching Jesus Christ, uh, they were inciting, they were, they, they were irritating the local Jews who didn't want to hear that. So riots were breaking out from the Jews who didn't want to hear the message of the Christians. So finally, uh, the, the emperor stands up and says, I've had enough of this rioting over this man called Jesus. Every person who's a Jew, leave the city. I don't care where you go. Get out of my town. Quill and Priscilla had to leave. They were Jews. They were converted Jews, but they were Jews. And by mandate of the emperor, they had to leave. They ended up in Corinth. And God says, I have many people there. Well, he didn't have many converts. So who did he have? What God meant, he said, I have many people there who are potentially going to get saved and they need to hear this. I have people who are ready to hear this. That's what I said. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of predestination. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole of foreknowledge. I just want to tell you that God knew there was a harvest and it was ready and it's ripe. And he was telling Paul, I, I, I have people waiting and ready to hear the gospel, and I want you to go and take the gospel message to them. Potential converts. Another way of saying it, the field was white to harvest. Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth, uh, an unusually long time by his history. And he was laying a foundation for a church that from the time the Corinthian church was established, by Paul's entrance into that city, there never ceased to be a church in Corinth until this very present day, and there's still a church in Corinth. God told Paul, there's a church there. 
All you have to do is just go and find it. Go and lead them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, Corinth was a wicked place. It was famous for its heathen temple with a thousand temple prostitutes. Can you imagine a religion based on temple prostitutes? Now you imagine the character and the nature of this town over, uh, over 200,000 people and nearly a quarter of a million people in Corinth, third largest city in the Roman Empire only behind Rome and Alexandria and then Corinth it, I mean Thessalonica was a, was a wicked place but it was a wicked town this is a wicked metropolis this is wickedness on steroids in Corinth and God says there's a harvest just waiting to be taken and the enemy fought Paul going there through fear and intimidation. But Paul, against his fears, went in and he lit a little candle. And he set it in the midst of darkness. And the flames never gone out since in Corinth. Then, then the enemy fought the young church. Even though there's a young church uh, there, Satan's not giving up. He's not done yet. Paul had to write letters to the Corinthian church and address all the problems they were having. It's not enough just to have a church. Now you've got to uh, address all the junk that's going on in the church and the people who are compromising and backsliding and making a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And it was a mess. And they had this man in there that was, had married his father's wife, his stepmother, or some, some weird thing going on. And half the church was voting saying that's a nice thing. And then the other half was saying, he should not do that. And then they would get together and they couldn't even fellowship because they wanted to brag about who the best preacher was. I like Paul. I like Paulus. And they, they just they were divided over everything. It was a mess. The enemy's not done just because you get a church established. Just because you get a building built. Just because you get a congregation. The enemy's going to fight the church until God says it's over. And Westside continues to fight against the efforts of the enemy to kill, steal, and destroy. Now we have our own modern versions of Corinth in a, in a symbolic manner, in a metaphorical way. We have our own modern versions of Corinth today. We have pockets of evil right here in the Quad Cities. And maybe we become a little bit discouraged. How in the world do you, do you break that evil? How do you break that? How do you penetrate the darkness in this city? Every once in a while I see uh, in the local news some group of people are going to gather in downtown and they're going to protest something in behalf of some ungodly, evil, wicked cause. And I think, how do you penetrate the darkness? And I'm sure God's message is, I have people in the Quad Cities. Just keep lighting the candle. Just keep sharing the message. Just keep giving the hope of Jesus Christ. Somebody needs to hear this. Somebody needs to get saved. Somebody's lost. Somebody's looking for it. There's much work to be done in our community. We're not overchurched by any means. I don't care how many churches there are in the Quad Cities. We're not over-churched. As long as there's unsaved people in the Quad Cities, we still have a lot of work to be done. 
God has many people. They need to be saved. So my encouragement is, let's not shrink in fear. Let's not become discouraged. Let's go forward in the promise of God.